Hey everybody and welcome back to the podcast. This is episode 25 of The Saltworks. I'm so excited. Pretty soon our season one will come to an end and we'll reconvene in the fall, but um, this will probably be our last standalone episode and it's a little different because uh, I'm still learning here, but I'm really excited about it because I think it's something that each and every one of us could really think on today. To know love, one must first know its origins. To not know God, the creator of all things, is to not understand love because we've never seen it embodied or experienced it. We may see an example or think we understand it in facets, but we couldn't really know it. One person could tell you what an earthquake is. Another could tell you how it feels, what it does, what's left in its wake. The only way we can see love incarnate is through God the Son. Scripture tells us He is the exact imprint of the Father, the Word in the flesh, living to love and dying to save. We have to know Him before we can begin to define love because it can come in so many different ways, as He so beautifully personified in His earthly life. Same could be said for all of the redemption, grace, and tough love in the Old Testament. When there was no reason to love or to forgive his people, our good and gracious God chased them down over and over, redeeming and forgiving, leading them to new wonderful places when there was none truly deserving. Even then, when mankind was not under the grace of Jesus Christ, God the Father showed unconditional love on so many wild and amazing occasions. The reason we cannot fully know what love is without knowing it's greater is because it does indeed come in many different forms, and so it must be understood from the heart of love itself, from the very character of God. Because love is this way, pride is much the same. We could not rightly recognize pride, though perhaps in one example, without knowing its origins as well, and the reason is much the same. If we look at one picture of pride and label it as the only form, we leave ourselves open to much deceit from others around us, but perhaps even scarier to ourselves. Because pride has only two shared qualities with love. The first is its ability to be sown in a thousand tiny and seemingly unnoticed ways. The second similarity is that both can begin so small and grow into something much larger without us even realizing it. Love grows without us realizing it because when we are faithful and obedient consistently, we will one day look back and realize it was growing all along, though so slowly it seemed like nothing was happening. Pride, however, purposefully grows unnoticed because we don't want to see it. Pride does not always portray itself as such, which I would argue is the most devastating kind. And the reason for this is because its origins come straight from the father of lies. And he does not show himself as such, but actually disguises himself as an angel of light. If his character, his very being is to disguise himself as light and deceive as such, why would pride prance around as what it actually is? No, it's quieter. It's more sinister, and more times than not, it's disguised also as light and good. There are many definitions of pride and many examples one could study, but I would boil the definition down to simply this. Anything that keeps one from being fully known, fully loved, and fully trusting of our good and gracious God. 
Maybe this seems too simple or too broad, but I assure you it is not, but actually a crucial tool for us to grow in self-awareness. And you'll hear us advocate often on this podcast for counseling, therapy, community, for when we cannot move forward or be objective in our own lives. So I'm going to read this again because I believe in it. Anything that keeps you from being fully known, fully loved, or fully trusting of our good and gracious God is at its root, pride. Whatever that thing is, if we could pull it up as we would a flower or a weed at the root, we would discover pride. And the truth is, we all have it somewhere. And the reason I use the word pride over, say, selfishness is because it does not always look like selfishness. That's where the disguise comes in, and we're going to look at that today. This week, my son's memory verse for school was, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that... The servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's found in 2 Timothy 3. Sometimes when we hear this verse, we think its sole message is to uphold scripture by telling us that it is actually the infallible word of God, which it does, and it is. But it also tells us why God has found it good to breathe this. There is purpose behind it being the unfailing word of God. It's not just true, it is the truth, and it remains truth no matter who chooses to see it, acknowledge, or accept it. We need to realize that truth does not cease to be truth if no one acknowledges it as such. Truth will always be true, and it should make our hearts glad and give us ease that we do have direction and something solid to depend on no matter what. One truth that God has breathed is that though heavens and earth shall pass away, His words never will. That's something to land on. But that's where the second part of the verse comes in. It's not just God's heart breathed onto pages for us to study and meditate, which is absolutely amazing in and of itself. It's also useful. The believer recognizes this and knows it, but sometimes he thinks it's only useful for others, or that the only use it has in his life is the training in righteousness. However, When it says that it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training, it does not mean it's useful for teaching her, rebuking him, correcting them, and training me. Because truth is truth and cannot be changed in any circumstance. What is true for you must also equally be true for me. That means God has breathed these words to teach me, to rebuke me, to correct me, and to train me in righteousness so that If my goal is to be a servant of God, I can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. However, we need to become a people better at recognizing if this truly is our goal. It is one thing to be redeemed and free and joyful. It is another to desire to be a servant of God. That simple view of ourselves and our purpose is absolutely crucial, and here's why. One says my salvation and sanctification is about me. That doesn't really take much training, teaching, or correcting because it's true there is nothing we can do to receive the gift of salvation. It is what Christ alone has done for us so that no man can boast. It is free. There are no works that we can do to earn it. The other says, my salvation was for me, and it was free, all based on what he's done and all despite what I've done. But my sanctification is for you because I am now a servant to serve others so that they may also see and find God. And that takes a whole lot of teaching, a whole host of rebuking, a lifetime of correcting, and much, much training in righteousness. And the reason it takes that is because, yes, we did not have to do anything or change anything to immediately be redeemed and receive that grace the minute we ask Him to be our Lord and Savior. 
but we have a lot to change if we want to be a servant of God thoroughly equipped for his good work. And it is when we don't think we do that we are on very dangerous grounds for pride to spread like wildfire. Proverbs 12.1 says, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. When we read that, we ask, who could love discipline? But it isn't that we love to receive it or feel it or walk through it. If I clean my house, clean out my, if I clean out my house, change my lifestyle or receive correction, it's not the process of going through those changes and refinement that I enjoy, but the effects of it. I love the clean closets. I love the way the healthier lifestyle makes me feel or the purified heart that brings with it an easy yoke. That's what I love. And to want that, we must love the knowledge of the Lord because we see it as an opportunity to grow, not an offense to be found once again wrong. I believe there was a time I would have crumbled to know I'd hurt someone or I'd let someone down or I'd messed up, whether in a big or small way. That was because deep down, I believed to my very identity and therefore self-worth, the thing I stood on was based on this image I'd created. Call it perfection, call it approval, call it success. What it is, friend, is pride. If we cannot see our fault and we cannot admit we are wrong, even if what we said or did was well-intentioned, we have become steeped in pride. Is it ever going to feel good to hear we messed up or fallen short or hurt someone? Of course not. But if we can get down to the root of this idol, to this hidden pride, it will no longer devastate our world nor uproot our God, because our God never changes nor casts a shifting shadow. There's this passage in Isaiah 41 that I've always found sort of comical, at least in an ironic sense. It says, The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying the soldiering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. Do you hear how many moving parts that verse has? It's so many that I I can't help but hear my husband's voice from a distinct memory when I read this passage. It was October 17th, 2015. LSU had just beat Florida. And our house was otherwise still because it was just me and Andrew at the time. And like all married couples without children, whether it's at all or just momentarily we had the whole night to ourselves we cooked steak and vegetables we rode to the creamery down the road for milkshakes at halftime and we sat down and watched the game at our leisure and it was great but as i began to take the full trash bag out of the trash can as was our routine to kind of clean before we went to bed my water broke not in a i'm not really sure what that was should i call the doctor and see sort of way but in a oh man This is it, no doubt about it, movie scene type of way. And I just stood there, feet apart, staring down, trash suspended in my hands. Eventually, I said to Andrew, who was unaware behind me, I think my water just broke. As if I wasn't a thousand percent sure. I think I was a little in shock to break it to myself, too, because plot twist, it was five weeks early on the dot and completely unexpected. So there I am, still standing, still staring still holding a bag full of trash, and behind me I can hear Andrew kind of walk as if he's starting to leave one side of the room and then thinking better of it, going the other way, not really knowing what to do, and as he's doing this, I hear him saying, okay, it's okay, okay, we're okay. To be honest, I don't even really know if he was talking to me or just himself, And, and the feel in the room was, can we acknowledge what's just happened? Are we ready to see what is occurring? Is it actually okay? And maybe if we say it enough, it will be. 
because deep down, we weren't really sure. We didn't know what was coming and we didn't entirely know what to do next. What these verses in Isaiah were describing when it says craftsmen is actually idol makers. One does this part, one holds this steady, one reassures the other, it is good. Okay, it's good. Okay, we're okay. And then they all work together to make sure with nails and materials that the idol is nice and fortified, that it won't be rocked. Do you see the irony? How hard it is to craft idols and get them to stay and remain upright at all, much less in the face of adversity? If we're having to work that hard to keep our worth and identity and fulfillment standing and intact, we are being idol makers. We're not finding our source of life from God, but from something we've crafted, and that's usually graven images of ourselves. Idols are sometimes set from insecurity. In fact, I'd argue most times they are, because the Lord has hardwired us to want and need security, but only in something that is actually secure and worthy of our trust. Even if our idol making is born of insecurity, they are still idols. And at the end of the day, self-esteem issues are still rooted in self and dependent on self. In the need to self-protect, if you bring accusation against me, you might make my idol fall. So I've got to hold it up. But if God is my God and my worth and my identity are in him, I am protected and I am safe no matter what may come against me. Even if I fail, I will not fall. We do not need to hold him up as we do our idols or ourselves. He will uphold us with his mighty hand. Yes, even when we're wrong, even when our world is in turmoil or all else seems out of control, he will strengthen us and uphold us. That worth and identity of being loved by him cannot fall in the face of anything. Right after those verses come this truth. This is a famous verse we hear quoted often. Fear not, for I am with you. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. There's a reason you feel broken when someone finds fault with you. There's a reason you feel shaken to your core when you've fallen short. There's a reason you feel as if your whole world might shift on its axis to admit you were wrong. There's a reason you feel utterly abandoned to step outside of comfort or let go of control. And it's because you are asking a lifeless thing to give you life. And that's dangerous. The only life-giving one worth trusting is the life-giver himself. Proverbs 12, 15 through 18 says the way of a fool is right in his eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. The vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. Whoever speaks truth gives honest evidence, but a false witness utters deceit. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. When we come to the place where we believe we must always be perfect, always be right, always be approved of, even by those we love and trust, anything that goes against this narrative will not only feel like a personal attack of our character, but it will feel like that person's feelings are actively dismantling our very self-worth and identity. If I'm surviving and living off the idea that I must never mess up, if you tell me I have or scripture tells me I have, the lies that I hear or that I have no self-worth, no identity now, or else the other person has to be wrong. It looks like self-protection. It looks like defensiveness. It looks like justice even, but at its root, you guessed it, 
pride. And the reason this is pride is because we have not trusted God to fully love us if he fully knew us. And if we can't acknowledge that with our Heavenly Father, we certainly cannot accept that with other people. And if in fact I do not believe I can allow myself to be fully known by Him, because if He only knew, He would not fully love me, then I do not fully trust Him. Here's the beautiful, freeing truth that the Father of lies disguised as light does not want you to see. You may be hiding and running from your own faults because to stop and acknowledge them would have to mean you are bad. But that is not what the voice of God says. It says you are indeed a sinner, and in fact all were, but all have fallen short, and none were righteous. No, not one, but God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love he has for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God the Father already saw all of your shortcomings, failings, flaws, and sins before the beginning of time, and he still created you. He still redeemed you, still sent his son to die for you, and still loves you. You don't have to fully know yourself for God to fully know you. But the gift of recognizing your faults and humbling yourself to see is that when we see the depths of our own brokenness and depravity, when we're strong enough to see and say, yeah, that's real. I really do have darkness I've believed or done or walked through. I've really lived or believed these lies. I've really worshipped these idols or walked in depravity or been steeped in pride or bitterness. Bitterness we realize he already knew and in fact has known all along and his love has never changed. He loves you the same as he did in the moment Jesus gave up his life for you. That's when freedom truly begins. This is why confession is so important, why self-awareness is so important. This is why therapy and scripture and friends and family who will speak truth to you is so important. It's not adding chains to you or bringing new faults or tearing you down or bringing accusations. It's making a way for freedom. That freedom only comes through the antidote to pride, humility. And we can only be humble if we know love. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Proverbs 28, 13, and 14. That hardening of our hearts comes when we cannot see we were wrong, when we literally feel like it's too painful or costs us too much that we don't even try. The question for ourselves in that moment and in every circumstances is not, am I wrong? It is, am I capable of being wrong? Remember when we talked about in order to know love, we must first know its origins and how pride is the same? Well, humility is no different. And that humility comes in the imprint of the Father we spoke about in the flesh of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, 3 through 8 says, do nothing from selfish ambition. Ouch, even right there he's got us because Even protecting myself is selfish ambition. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. In other words, recognize that witnessing to someone else through your humility or loving someone else through self-sacrifice is better than to self-preserve. 
He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Be honest what you need, but do what others need. What do they care about? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Those verses are some of the most powerful because What Jesus contained was the very essence of God. Though he was in the beginning with God, though he was God from the beginning, though he was all things good, worthy, holy, it was still worth it to him to empty himself to love us. We can be full of all kinds of selfish ambitions and motives, and yet we don't want to give up a one. We build walls, letting none in. He was the only one worthy of glory and defense and protection, but he gave and emptied and died so that we may be made righteous through our surrender. Jesus did not defend himself one time. Never once did he defend himself for his sake, but only ever did he defend truth for the sake of the person who was being deceived. For the people who would walk away bound by sin, deceived by pride, and following blindly after what they thought was an angel of light, only then did he ever defend, because he did not come to be right, but to make us righteous. He did not come to defend himself, but to defend us against sin and the enemy. He came to humble himself, give up himself, not just in death, but in small increments throughout his entire life, beginning with being bound to the very flesh you and I live in every day, to live confined in our broken, fallen world. In order for you and I to truly become humble, we cannot wait for life and circumstances to humble us. That is where the victim mentality, pride disguised as humility, comes into play. You see, somewhere in your life, you have been a victim. You were hurt. You were let down, abandoned, neglected, forgotten, abused, slandered, wronged. Somewhere in your life that happened. That was real. But if you think that because it did, that you are humble, you are not correctly understanding humility. Because we can be pushed on our face and still be angry and prideful to be found in such a lowly position. It is possible to be humbled without being humble. But it is hard to humble someone who has already humbled themselves. We can become so self-righteous about what we deserve that in all truth, we deserve death. We've never gotten what we deserve. The wages for our sin is death. And what we've gotten is life and abundantly no less. And the way we got that life is through the one who created the heavens, through the one who holds the foundations of the earth by the power of his word. He humbled himself to come, humbled himself to stay, humbled himself to serve, heal, be ridiculed, be betrayed, be slandered, be misunderstood, be a servant, and then humbled himself to wash our feet right before he washed away our sins. As he gave up the final thing he had left, his spirit. He cried out and yielded it up, not taken, not destroyed, not forced, but gave up willingly by himself. 
That is the only power strong enough to tear the veil. Love so humble and so sacrificing, nothing could separate. And that's the only way you and I can seek true humility. In order to become humble like Christ, we must follow his lead, not to be humbled, but to humble ourselves. And the only one who can do that for you is you. If humility is forced, it begins to grow pride. If it is chosen, if it is self-willed, it begins to grow love and tear things down no man can explain, nor do in his own power. God-breathed scripture says that if anyone wants to find his life, he must first give it up. But if he tries to keep it, he will lose it. If we're struggling to give up our life, it's because somewhere deep down we're trusting something else, someone else, to give us life. If we're struggling to admit our wrongs, it's because somewhere we believe that we cannot be wrong because we're incapable or our self-image will fall. If we're struggling to be rejected by the world, it's because somehow we've believed it's the world's opinion that defines us. If we're struggling to humble ourselves, it's because we think we've given up enough, done enough, suffered enough, and we are not seeing how much he gave and how much he did and suffered so that we may find him and how our own humbling of ourselves could show the same to another. They may not be deserving, neither are we. If we cannot accept our failings and imperfections, it's because somewhere we accepted the lie that the only way we can have life is to be perfect, that the only way to be loved is to never fail. Even in the moments when I simply cannot fathom that the God of the universe would personally love and see and lead me, it's pride. Because in that same day, I'll turn to my four-year-old and ask him all about his day. Put a band-aid on his scratch, ask him who he played with, what crafts he made, see to what he needs, and tell him how much I love him. In the same day, I'll disbelieve that God the Father loves me. I'll turn and show love to my son. And at the root of that is arrogance that I as a person could ever love more deeply, fully, and personally than the creator of love himself, than the good and gracious shepherd. The way love and humility was designed is so that through being loved by the one who never fails, though we constantly fail him, he came and loved us first through giving up everything. And we too can give up our pride to surrender and turn and follow him. What's keeping you from being fully known, fully loved, and fully trusting in our good, good Father? What's keeping you from humbling yourself like our amazing and beautiful Savior? What's keeping you from following willingly whatever the Spirit is leading you to do? It's time to uproot that. Don't let pride keep you from freedom. Don't let it disguise itself as light, but turn toward the true source of life that is indeed useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that you too can be thoroughly equipped to be the light of the world. If you aren't sure, ask the Lord. Ask him to search you and show you. Search his word. Confess to one of his servants. Go to counseling, but seek freedom and start first by humbling yourself. I hope and pray right now that you heard the Lord speaking to you, not because you're bad, but because he wants to free you because you are loved. I hope you have a great week and we will see you next week on The Salt Works.
this is my story This is your story 